Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the ways that mental health and IBS is so connected is that shame and that stigma that surrounds it and means that people often don't seek help or don't feel that they're going to be believed or feel like they can even talk about it. So there's a really... A really important thing to raise around stigma and shame that people might experience and also the, and I like to stress this from the beginning, the misconception that IBS is a psychological condition or that it's quote unquote in someone's head, which is absolutely not the case, not ever in any circumstance. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I am interviewing Dr. Naomi Middleton, who is a clinical psychologist and yoga teacher. Dr. Naomi has a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Oxford and is a registered clinical psychologist. She has had over 10 years experience work in the NHS and is currently the lead psychologist for functional gut disorders and pelvic floor health. Dr. Naomi specializes in gut and bowel health, eating behavior, body image, and helping people to adjust to and live well with long-term physical health conditions. So I've been fascinated by this area because for me, my stress is first seen in the gut. And I'm not sure if anybody relates to this, but when I'm stressed, the first thing that will tell me I'm stressed if I refuse to believe it is my bloating and my constipation. So when I found Dr. Naomi's work, I was completely fascinated and was just desperate to get her on the show to explain why this happens and just teach us about why this connection is so relevant to our overall health and well-being. Today, we are going to dive into this connection between our guts, our bowels, and our psychological health, and to understand the relationship and to discuss how we can help our own healing of both. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? So when I, when you asked me this question, the thing that kind of really come into my head was um, the quote that's holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, which is a quote by Buddha and something that's been in my awareness for years and years now. And I remember I was end of my first year of my doctorate and, and struggling a bit with it personally and feeling quite overwhelmed, struggling with doing CBT and it just wasn't connecting. And somehow, and I don't remember how this quote came into my life, but somehow it did. And I was like, oh, it just really resonated. And ever since then, just this idea of acceptance of being with whatever it is that we're struggling with of just allowing things to come and go and not hold on to that pain or that suffering changed my life both personally but also professionally so it's always going to be one of the quotes that I just hold dear and share with everyone. I 
absolutely love that. I guess you know this more than anyone, but when we start to realize what actually happens to the body when we do get angry, I mean, for me, I really understand like why that would be described as poison. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining what does the body look like on anger? Oh, yeah, great question. Because I mean, and I guess this probably varies a bit as as each individual feels with, with response to their own anxiety. But certainly for me, I always notice this tension that comes in and my, my jaw, in my hands, in my chest, in my stomach. And I kind of end up just almost frowning more and just noticing that I'm walking around in this just really tense place. And when our mm-hmm. body is tense like that, straight away, we're getting that influence of adrenaline and cortisol and we're kind of flooding our body with those stress hormones and then I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this more later that's going to have an impact on our physical health and particularly on our gut so we get all these physical changes as well and we sort of lose track of what's actually happening in the moment and kind of get caught up in just this story of anger or frustration and yeah, I just, I think being able to practice that, letting go of that and knowing that the more we hold on to it, we're just causing more suffering to ourselves. Nothing's actually changing. I mean, even just hearing you speak, I can feel my shoulders relax down a bit and I'm suddenly aware <laughs> of my jaw and I'm like, oh, okay, let's unclench that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thank you for that, Dr. Naomi. Uh, what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Uh, So I think the thing that I'm being reminded of all the time at the moment, particularly, is to slow down and to take my time. And I think it's a a real pattern that I've noticed in myself of rushing and needing to be somewhere and always having to kind of rush places. And again, that creates stress and unnecessary stress and tension in my body. And the, the person that's actually teaching me this life lesson is my toddler, who's three and a half, because she just takes her time and she's so unapologetic about that because she's obviously three and a half and she's just you know we walk to a nursery and she's just looking at everything and stopping to look at the apples and the bees on the trees and you know it's just so beautiful to see her and I don't want to take that away from her I don't want her to kind of grow up with the same pressures that I think most people of our generation have had of that rushing and stressing so yeah being able to just slow down pause take my time and know that we'll get places when we're going to get places ultimately like we will get there it doesn't matter if we're a few minutes late or a few minutes early it will just be as it will be Lots for us all to think about from that one. So again, thank you for sharing. And lastly, I mean, this is again, an odd question, but I always enjoy people's different answers. How do you understand the soul? I think for me, it's that part of us that's kind of beyond words Mm. and beyond our like conscious ability to even like describe and understand. So to use like a, a metaphor, I guess I sort of think of it a bit like the sky, this space within us that's always there. It can't be harmed. You know, it remains steady, present, pure. It's like this constant part of us. And I think at times, you know, weather and different things can kind of disconnect us from this essential, our, our essential self, basically, our soul. The storms that arise, weather that comes up, emotional crises that show up that kind of create this disconnection. But ultimately, we can always find this way back to it and know that it's always there, that kind of steadiness, I guess, is that's sort of my way of understanding it. That's a lovely metaphor. I think we can all imagine the sky within us. Mm. So on to what I'm very excited to dive into today and your specialist area, being the connection between our mental health and our 
gut bowel health. And I think that whenever you start talking about poo or digestion, everyone's like, oh, they slightly kind of cringe. (laughs) But we are going to have an episode to celebrate all of these things that are so normal to being human. How are these things connected? Yeah, I think that it's such an important question to ask. And I think, like you say, it is something that we cringe and get really embarrassed about. Um, and that's one of the ways that mental health and IBS is so connected is that shame and that stigma um, that surrounds it and means that people often don't seek help or don't feel that they're going to be believed or feel like they can even talk about it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think sometimes that does happen that people aren't believed or aren't fully understood when they do go and seek help. So there's a really a really important thing to raise around stigma and shame that people might experience. And also the, and I like to stress this from the beginning, the misconception that IBS is a psychological condition or that it's quote unquote in someone's head, which is absolutely not the case, not ever in any circumstance. So it's, I think, yeah, it's so important to know that yes, IBS and mental health is connected, but it's not a psychological condition. So one of the ways I help people to understand how it's connected is is usually by just sort of saying, can you think of a time where you've maybe been anxious? Maybe there's been quite a big event like a driving test, an exam, wedding day, moving house, just something that has been stressful. And when you think back to that time, can you remember what was happening in your gut? Were there any changes? And more often than not, people notice that maybe there was butterflies in their tummy, maybe they needed to go to the toilet more often, they were emptying their bladder and bowel more than normal, normal, or maybe they noticed that constipation or diarrhea showing up. So usually we can start to see that link of, okay, there's been a stressful event, something that's really related to anxiety, and that's changed my gut as well. So the reason that this happens is something called the brain-gut axis. And that's essentially the communication between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. So it's this two-way communication. So what that means is what we're thinking, how we're feeling, our emotions, our behaviors, all that kind of psychological stuff that is directly communicated and has an impact on our gut, but also how our gut is feeling. So if there's any tension, irritation, any inflammation in our gut, that's also directly communicated to our brain and affects how we feel psychologically. So I think that two-way communication is, again, really important to stress and highlight because I think sometimes we only notice that one-way direction. And so what we know with IBS now is actually a disorder of the brain-gut axis, of the communication between the brain and gut not working well. And I think previously it was kind of a bit more misunderstood or not very well understood. We know now that actually what's important is that we get the brain and the gut communicating well. So our brain-gut axis, an important part of that is our autonomic nervous system. And a part of our autonomic nervous system is our fight or flight response, which is what we were just talking about earlier. When we're anxious, when we're stressed, when we're angry, this has a fundamental change in our gut health. So what we see is that the blood supply kind of moves away from digestion. So in some cases, it slows down. In some cases, it even stops. um, And it goes to other parts of the body to prepare us to fight or run away from danger. And then we notice a change in our gut health. So we might see 
nausea, pain, vomiting, we might get diarrhea, we might get constipation, how it kind of affects us is very different to the individual. Um, But that's often why we're getting these gut symptoms is because of this fight or flight response that has sort of shown up in the body. And sometimes that fight or flight response can really persist and be quite chronic over time. And I think the other thing that's probably important to say is also our microbiome. So our microbiota are really important here as well. Essentially, what that's doing is working um, to maintain homeostasis in the body, so physical and psychological. So if we've got that disruption to our gut microbiome, again, we might notice that disruption to our psychological health and to our gut health. So it's quite a complex system that's going on in the body. Um, It can be quite hard for people to understand, I think, and make sense of. What I guess I'm fascinated with is, and you did mention it there, your fight or flight, your stress response can cause constipation and then, or it could cause diarrhea. What would change as to what it manifests in? So like I was saying before, we've got the autonomic nervous system. So that's what contains our sympathetic nervous system, which for the most part, people know as our fight or flight response. So it's this system that gets triggered when we're anxious. And what happens is we get sort of more activation in our bowel and in our large bowel. So that's more stimulated. And that can lead to this urge to defecate or to urinate. So that where might be where we might see more like diarrhea, for example, when we've got this sort of stimulation in our large bowel. In terms of constipation, sometimes what can happen is we get spasms throughout the gut. So if those spasms are located to a particular area, sometimes that might then lead to more of a constipation presentation happening. But also what's really important to know with stress and where things I think get like more complex and looking at a slightly bigger picture here is that when we are stressed, our tailbone tucks under and that shortens our pelvic floor muscles. So then our pelvic floor muscles get more tense. When our pelvic floor muscles are tense, especially over prolonged periods of time, that can cause constipation. So it could be then that for someone who's struggling with constipation, it may be that their pelvic floor muscles have become really tense and really tight. And that's why they're struggling with constipation. For people who are having diarrhea, for example, it might be that it's to do with their digestion, the the process of digestion in their body becoming really slow and really sluggish, for example. So it's really, it can be really hard sometimes to even pinpoint and sometimes people get both at the same time. And so again, even harder for them to figure out, okay, why is this happening for me? God, that's so interesting. Why would the tailbone, like what from an evolutionary perspective, why would our tailbone curl if we were stressed? How would that have helped us survive back in the day? So as I understand it, it's to do with our muscles tensing and tightening in order to run or to fight danger so I would guess I mean maybe a physio would know this better posturally when the tailbone is tucking under potentially it's about charging you up so that you're ready to run so often the muscles along the front of the body as well can get really tense and really tight along the front of the pelvis also your anal sphincter muscle will tense and tighten so essentially all your muscles are getting like tense and tight to either fight or run away from from danger So it must be to do with that kind of postural thing, which is not what we want when we want to go to the toilet, of course. We want everything to be relaxed and not tense in order for us to open our our bowels. Random, random, far out (laughs) there question. For someone who potentially has that natural response to tuck the tailbone, those sort of Pilates exercises that help people tense the abs even more, 
could that not be so great if you are that person? Yeah, so it could. this could apply for yoga as well, Pilates or anything where we might be tensing and tightening and lifting the pelvic floor too much. So it's really important to have control over our pelvic floor muscles. We need to know how to coordinate them to tighten them, but we also need to know how to relax them. And so sometimes I think this can also happen with like maybe certain dancing as well. So some people who are very fit, very active, who have spent lots and lots of time kind of tensing and tightening their pelvic floor really struggle with how to then relax it and may then have difficulties like with constipation with other pelvic floor dysfunction because of that. So yeah, it's really worthwhile being mindful of breathing and being able to relax the pelvic floor. I think in society, we've become so fearful of incontinence, especially for Mm. women, women of childbearing age who have had children, so fearful of incontinence. And of course, that's quite a common narrative of wetting ourselves or of not being able to control the pelvic floor so that we get, again, we want to tense and tighten them. And also in terms of body image, that narrative that we've had of, you know, hold your stomach in, pull your muscles in, make sure you're as small as you can possibly be, again, is going to lead us to tense and to chronically tighten our pelvic floor muscle. To talk about pelvic floor, because this is obviously very uh, linked with your work. And when I first read, you know, you being a specialist in pelvic floor health, I suddenly thought, huh, haven't heard of one of those before. What drew you to want to become a specialist in pelvic floor? Yeah, it's a very unique specialty for psychology, actually. And I think one of the things most people ask me is, why are you working in that area, even from other psychologists as well? So I think it's, yeah, it's an unusual place to work. For me, I, I guess I've just, I've always been interested in physical health and in the relationship between the mind and body and never really seen them as these two separate things. I always kind of wanted to work as a psychologist in this physical health umbrella rather than in a, a kind of more mental health sphere. And I just got so interested in the gut. I used to work in in weight management and in eating behavior. And I started to get more and more interested in the gut and what was going on behind just the sort of consumption of food. And then that led me to this role in the NHS that I had, which was the functional gut and pelvic floor service. And because the gut and pelvic floor are so connected, it just made sense to kind of put all of this together, really, and to understand how they interlink. So that's kind of what ended up kind of led me to working in this area and then the more and more I learned about it the more I realized just how much of an impact pelvic floor health has on us psychologically whether that's through again we've spoken about the shame or stigma that people experience also because of the trauma often there's been trauma to the pelvic floor um, sometimes through childbirth sometimes through other means and that's led to pelvic floor dysfunction and again psychological distress and difficulty So there's so many different elements, again, to it and so many different ways that we can support people to help them to live well with their physical health condition from that psychological perspective. I could be wrong, but I guess because you've mentioned childbirth being Mm -hmm. something that can distress the pelvic floor, do you mostly work with women or do men also experience pelvic floor health issues? Yes. So men do as well. I mostly, I'm trying to think, yeah, I'd say 90% of the people that I saw were probably women, but men certainly can have um, pelvic floor dysfunction as well. So things that might cause pelvic floor dysfunction uh, other than childbirth can be uh, like bodybuilding or strenuous weightlifting. Um, So sometimes men and women, of course, who are lifting heavy weights and things like that may end up with strain to their pelvic floor muscles and, and problems there. 
also um, when there's been any kind of, again, sort of trauma to the pelvic floor. So sometimes, um, yeah, people who maybe have had repeated anal sex or unconsensual anal sex, again, that may have also led to trauma to the pelvic floor and, of course, psychological trauma. And that then I would often see them for that reason as well. So yeah, mostly women, but occasionally men. Sometimes men don't think they have a pelvic floor. They definitely do. <laughs> so how do we live a healthy gut, bowel and pelvic floor life? There's so many different things that we can do, whether that's psychological diet or otherwise. I think for me, you know, part a big part of that is diet, making sure that we're kind of eating the foods as best we can, because of course, there's all sorts of different barriers that may impact on what we are able to eat. Um, but eating foods that nourish our gut health, and generally speaking, that's often plant based foods and a diversity of plant based foods. That's one of the things that I try to do. Don't always do it, of course, because you know, we're all human, but to get that diversity in plant based foods into our diet things like posturally being able to like sit on the toilet properly so that's sitting with our knees raised maybe our feet on a stool particularly if we struggle with constipation and actually having time to sit and and go to the bathroom and again I say this with two toddlers now so I know sometimes not everyone has that time and luxury to do that Um, but even if you do have kids you know sharing that with them like my three-year-old now will sit with her knees up she does her deep breaths and she's opening her bowels and so we're kind of able to sort of show and share with her things like that so I think that can be it's these really simple things that we can put in day to day that can make a difference as well as just you know being kind to ourselves acknowledging when we're struggling figuring out what are the triggers what is it that kind of causes me to be stressed what is it that causes me to be anxious are there things that I can do to help that whether it's breathing exercises or movement getting out in daylight anything that's sort of nourishing really for our our gut for our microbiome that kind of diversity in food and activity and movement And I think for me, the biggest thing that I try to do is just connection, whether that's connecting with myself, connecting with others, just living isolated lives often creates so much more stress uh, on our system. So being connected and present with others has been a real changer for me and for many of the people that I work with as well. Are there any things that you advise people against when it comes to solving for IBS? I mean, I guess laxatives in the short term probably do provide relief, but also long term, what are the damages or supplementation and the same for on the other side of things, diarrhea. What are the things that your short term relief perhaps isn't such good long term relief? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think there can be many things that can be sort of life saving for some people in the short term, like laxatives, but then may cause them problems or may not in the long term. And again, I think this often comes back down to that individual thing. I think for me, it's about being flexible and open minded and making sure people don't stick with something when it's no longer working for them, because that's often what we do. And that's a very human thing to do. We, we get a strategy. Like, for example, we cut a certain food out of our diet, maybe we cut out beans and pulses, because we know that irritates our gut, we take that out of our diet, and we just do that forever more. At some point, that will probably stop working for various different reasons. So it's about kind of being able to be flexible and notice when is this now not working for me? And what can I now do to change it? So there's a lot of misinformation out there with IBS, like just cut these foods out or just take laxatives or just do this, just do that. But it's not necessarily thinking about that longer term picture. 
So something that you're interested in is the polyvagal theory. What is this firstly, and how can this help our gut and bowel health? Yeah, so again, it's a a wonderful um, theory. It can be so helpful for our our psychological and our physical well-being. And so it's created by someone called Stephen Porges long, long time ago, many years ago, and it's sort of evolved and, of course, developed over time. Um, But essentially, it's looking at our nervous system and how our nervous system interacts with the world around us. So what the theory proposes is that we are kind of our nervous system is sort of constantly scanning both ourselves and the environment around us and looking for cues of safety and danger. Mm. And when it gets those particular cues, that activates parts of our nervous system. So the nervous system is sort of organized into hierarchy. So we've got the kind of at the bottom of the nervous system, often in polyvagal theory, they use like a ladder diagram. So at the bottom of that ladder, we've got our dorsal vagal pathway, which is a parasympathetic pathway. And it's also known as like a shutdown response in that response in that part of our nervous system we can feel very disconnected very hopeless depressed very it can be a very dark very dismal kind of place for us to be an example of that in a sort of everyday terms might be that if we're say just sat on the sofa maybe we're watching tv we notice that we're really cold and there's a jumper or a blanket the other side of the room but we can't even mobilize ourselves to go and get that jumper that might be an example of that system in in action where we're just so sort of disconnected we just don't even have the energy just to even take care of ourselves in that simple way so we've got that part of our nervous system we've got then the sympathetic nervous system which is our fight or flight response our mobilization so the anger the anxiety the frustration that kind of red hot feeling often And then at the top of the hierarchy, at the top of that ladder, we've got our social engagement system and the place where we feel safe and connected. And this part of our nervous system is also a parasympathetic nervous system. And this is where we are functioning well. We're at our optimum. We are balanced and our digestion is working. Everything is working as it needs to be and, and we are living well. That doesn't mean we're living without sadness or without kind of emotional distress in our life of course that's a normal part of being human but we're able to cope with it our nervous system is flexible and we're able to live with that pain or that discomfort that's showing up so what in terms of kind of how this might impact with our IBS with our physical health is that sometimes we can get stuck in those lower parts Mm -hmm. of the nervous system some people may get really stuck in that anger anxiety part some people might get really stuck in that sort of shutdown response and when we get stuck there this is where the health of the gut changes because whether we're in that shutdown response potentially there our digestion's really slowing down maybe even coming to a halt if we're in our fight or flight response like we've just talked about maybe we're noticing an urgency or in, or um, diarrhea or even sometimes people might have incontinence accidents things like that happening mm-hmm. so again it's really about working with people to understand and get to know their nervous system what does my nervous system look like how does it respond and how can I promote flexibility and balance in my nervous system so that I can better manage my physical health and my psychological health. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And what sort of things would help us increase our vagal tone and for us to move up that vagal mm-hmm. tone scale so we are in that more balanced, flexible state at the top and not so stuck in these low vibrations, I guess? So one of, uh, one of the most simple things we can do is breathing. Um, and if that works for us, then that's a really wonderful tool because we always have it to our availability. Um, so if we notice that we tend to be stuck in that shutdown response, so where we're feeling more disconnected, um, maybe more withdrawn and, and struggling with energy, we often need to get a bit of sympathetic energy. So we actually need a bit of fight or flight response before we can come back to that place of balance. So we then need to energize ourselves. So what can help in that example is to do something called a square breath technique which is where we are breathing in for four and breathing out for four so we create a kind of even breath response Um, so our inhalation is associated with our sympathetic energy and our exhalation is associated with our relaxation response so we do that kind of four four breath we can build a bit more energy in our body get a bit more mobilization and that can help to move us back up to that place of balance If, however, we notice that we're more on that fight or flight response and we've got a lot of energy already, for some people, they need to find a way to release that. So they need to do a bit of movement, a bit of exercise, whatever that looks like for them. Sometimes it's about dancing around the room. Sometimes it's about stomping their feet or kind of stretching their arms in the air. And then it can often be helpful to do a breathing exercise that helps to calm their nervous system. So with that one, I'd usually invite them to try a rectangle breath. So where you'd breathe in for four and breathe out to eight. Uh, So you're lengthening your exhale. So then you're encouraging more of that relaxation energy into the body and calming the nervous system. But there's lots of other things that you can do for your vagal tone as well. So sometimes people find anything to do with the mouth quite helpful. Mm. So whether that's chanting, singing, jaw massage, anything that's sort of helping to kind of release tension around the mouth can help. Cold water therapy can help. So whether that's washing face with um, cold water or going to the more extreme examples of cold showers or cold water swimming, anything that's around connecting with other people, again, can also help to tone the vagus nerve. So being with people that you love, admire, you know, that you enjoy in that kind of community setting can be really, really beneficial. Exercise and moving the body, there's lots of different things. It's about that the key is about what sort of resonates and connects with you as an individual. How does inflammation relate to all of this? Again, so coming back to that fight or flight response and that nervous system. So when our body is in our fight or flight response, when it's not in its kind of optimal balance, 
the health of the body changes. And as a result of that, we can experience more pain, we can get more inflammation. Essentially, what's kind of going on is the body is not healing itself as well, because it's resources that would normally go to healing to kind of maintaining balance are going to other things. So they're going to mobilize us to fight off that potential danger or threat. So again, when we've got that inflammation in our gut, that's going to have an impact on how we feel emotionally and psychologically. So if we can do things that help us to bring back balance to our nervous system, to calm our body, then that essentially tells our body we're okay, we can repair, we can heal. You know, things like pain sensitization decreases. Ultimately, our body is working better. Inflammation reduces when we're more balanced. That's why things like sleep is so important because when we're asleep, we're in our parasympathetic nervous system. The body is able to restore and repair really, really well. If we're not sleeping, if we're struggling with sleep, we notice we often get more ill. Things feel more painful because our body is in that fight or flight response more often. So what daily habits have you cultivated that you feel have had the biggest impact on your health and happiness? So I'd say for me, one of the longest things has been like diet and and what I'm eating. And I mentioned this before about just being plant-based and kind of eating in a way that's more intuitive. So instead of giving myself permission to eat certain foods or calories or any of that, or like healthy or not healthy foods, instead just eating in a way that feels right and good for my body. And that's been a real massive, massive change for me. Um, So it's not restrictive, it feels more open and more permissive. And I think that's had a real benefit on my health and well-being. The other thing has been finding movement that again benefits my body and over time that's kind of geared more towards like yin practices restorative practice much slower gentler movement than when I was younger when I needed a lot more energetic movement I noticed especially since becoming a parent I needed to be slower so finding ways of kind of having that slow gentle movement in my body getting outside every day if I can is key Um, I'm really really lucky to live near woods so you know going out to explore nature and kind of just getting into the environment I think the environment can be a real huge trigger for us so Mm -hmm. again that's another thing that I've been looking at how can I make in my day-to-day life how can I make my environment work for me what do I need to change in my home because if Mm -hmm. things are in the wrong place I find that really stressful so there's simple things that I can do my husband and I are in this whole process of completely changing our house at the moment because we just realized it was really triggering for us (laughs) the way it was laid out and how it was decorated so it's just I think yeah these like little day-to-day things that we can get into our lives and I think the other thing for me that I often do is to let go of any like painful or difficult thoughts I've learned sort of skills and techniques that help me to unhook from thoughts that are really painful really distressing for me so I don't get caught up in that story and I can bring myself back to the present and this kind of brings me on to ACT therapy which is something you Mm -hmm. specialize in and bizarrely I really got very interested in ACT when I was writing my book and the work of Dr. Stephen Hayes and you know his whole introduction of psychological flexibility was really to be honest the basis for me writing my book so Mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of hear from you what are the tools that perhaps this therapy has introduced you to that you found most effective? 
Oh, yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it, ACT? I think, first of all, probably the values work was a big changer for me and for many people that I work with. And just being able to take stock of what matters to you. I think we often want to make changes in our life or kind of do things differently, but we don't always know why, like what's underpinning that. And so really getting a sense of what is it that matters to me? What kind of person Mm. do I want to be? What kind of parent or worker or daughter or whatever? Like kind of what, how do I want my relationships to be? How do I want to spend my time? I think that really anchors people, myself and and the people that I've worked with, it really anchors us to then know why we want to make our changes and to give us that support to make changes when things are difficult. So yeah, learning values is a real beneficial tool, I think. And then in terms of the more mindfulness side of ACT, for me, it's been about learning, It's they call them the diffusion skills. And that's essentially the skills that help us to unhook from the painful or the distressing thoughts that show up. So um, for example, if we're worried about something, let's say for people with IBS, they might be, um, often people might have a phobia around using the toilet. Um, so get a bit like toilet anxiety, whether we're out in public or at home or only, only having certain toilets we might go in. So you might notice this worry, you know, what happens if I need to use the bathroom when I'm out? What happens if someone hears or smells or knows I'm, you know, I'm going to the toilet? So we can get kind of really caught up in this thought process. And essentially what happens is we stop living in the moment we get caught up in our in our stories and we withdraw we stop doing the things that matter to us we stop going to the places that we want to go to so if we can learn how to kind of unhook from those thoughts that can be really again really life-changing so there's simple things we can do one of the tools that I really like is just saying thank you mind like oh thank you mind for that thought and then just letting that go and coming back to the values and what okay what actually matters in this moment Another thing that I found really helpful is giving our mind, especially if we've got a bit of an inner critic, giving our mind a name, whatever name that might be, and being able to go, ah, okay, so this is, you know, Bob sharing his wisdom again, or this is Sally sharing her thoughts. You know, it doesn't matter what the name is, but being able to kind of externalize and give our mind a name so that we can again create a bit of separation and a bit of distance from it so that we can again start to see what really matters here. Um, Because often when we've got that thought process happening, we get too so caught up in in that. And those thoughts can then trigger our fight or flight response. um, And we get caught in that vicious cycle of stress again. So anything that creates that sort of separation from thoughts can be really wonderful. And another key thing, I think, as well, is being able to feel our feelings. And ACT Mm. is really about acceptance and opening up to the present moment, opening up to the emotions that are here um, and allowing ourselves to feel what we need to feel, whether that's anger, sadness, you know, all of the things that we would automatically probably try not to feel. And our society often says, you know, don't worry, just cheer up get over it, pull yourself together, whatever it is that that language that we hear and instead doing the opposite and actually, you know, opening a door, turning a torch on, shining a light on what it is that we're feeling and allowing ourselves to feel it. Again, that can be so incredible, actually difficult and making this sound really easy and can just do all of these things like there's no no problem. That's not the case. It can be really, it, it is really difficult to learn these skills, but they, again, they can be really, really beneficial when we do open up to them. Going back to the values work, how do you actually practically do this? Do you have something on your phone or notes that says, what are my top values? And so when you're, I don't know, worried about a decision, you go back to your list of your values or do your values change? How often do you review your values? How do you practically work with values? 
Yeah, I think I think I mean values do change. I think there will be some that probably remain fairly constant, but ultimately I think they do change or what changes maybe is your the priority. So I try to think of values across the board, so things that are more personal, things that are about maybe personal development, whether that's work, um, whether that's parenting, you know, what it is that's you as an individual, relationships, friendships, family, partners, health values around your health and values around kind of leisure time um, and how you want to spend your free time, community, that sort of stuff, spirituality, um, if that's important as well. So what you might notice is that, say, for example, if, you, if you're unwell, your your priority might shift and your values around health might be guiding you a little bit more in that moment. Or if you notice, you know, there's a life change, maybe there's someone that you care for that's unwell, your values may shift around relationships. So I think, again, it's about having that flexibility to be able to shift the focus and know that nothing is stuck. If we hold anything too tightly, we then get weighed down by it and it feels like a weight and then we get start to resist it. So it's about holding these things like they're balloons, they're light and they're changeable as and when they need to. So one of the things I often do myself and with with my clients is to think about like a compass because values are like a direction we want our life to be heading in, right? They're not something that we tick off and achieve, they're guiding us. So a compass type exercise where we might start to map out our values and that can be almost like a blueprint that we can come back to and refer to and change and, and kind of grow from there. So I think often once we've sort of done that fundamental work, then it can become a little bit more psychological we don't necessarily need to always look back at it we're often more familiar with it we can just review as and when we need to and for other people they do they prefer to have it written down so they might go back to that blueprint or write something up on their phone Um, so I think it's nice to have all the different options available and just see again what works for the individual I have to say I found values work so helpful because I can procrastinate around decisions Mm -hmm. really easily and you're like, oh, should I say yes, should I say no? Is this the right thing for me? And then you end up just wasting so much time going back and forth and you kind of end up in this circle of thoughts without any sort of route forward. And so values has been such an interesting thing to help me make decisions because immediately I'm like, oh, well, what? answer would be most aligned with my values Mm -hmm. which has been helpful and the values of the life that I want to create moving forward not necessarily some of the values I have mistakenly prioritized in the past yeah you also work in supporting people with binge eating how does that manifest you know are there things that you often repeatedly see I don't know chronic stress or stuff happening in childhood or what are some of the common causes you see amongst people that experience binge eating? Yeah so I think with binge eating and I would add kind of emotional eating as well because I think they can be very similar although different so with binge eating if we're thinking about it kind of in its strictest terms and we're looking at a large amount of food more than what would be typically consumed in that very short space of time and feeling out of control when we're eating it emotional eating can be a uh, there's no amount of food it might be a small amount it might be a large amount um so it's not as kind of restrictively defined but I think again they're very similar and and overlap and a lot of the causes may apply to both there's definitely things from childhood that I think people notice part of that can be rules around food and rules around eating so whether they grew up in a family household that was and I think this is really really common that we did in our family homes also maybe in our school environments as well of you must eat everything on your plate like you Mm. can't leave the table until everything has been eaten 
And so from that really young age, we're conditioned to not listen to our body in terms of whether we're hungry or not, but we're conditioned to eat what's on our plate and to stop eating it at that point. Um, so we've got that kind of miss, we kind of lose that intuition and that connection to our body because we are just eating whatever's there. Um, so that can often happen. I think it can be a common early trigger or early factor. And the other thing um, can be around food being used to uh, control emotion. And again, I think this is quite a common thing because we are, again, this is very human. We find it very difficult to be with our painful emotions. So, and I think we find it hard to witness others with their painful emotions. And I see this as a parent with my daughter. You, of course, you want your children to be happy all of the time, but that's mm-hmm. not realistic. So when they're sad or distressed, it's easy to offer them food as a form of comfort. And so we can grow up, I think, in our childhood learning, oh, okay, so I'm sad. I need to have something to eat in order to feel better. And it works. Food tastes good. It releases Mm. serotonin. We get the happy chemicals from eating it. So it does work in the short term. So we can see why people end up doing it. Again, it's one of those strategies that in the short term can work for us, but in the long term can potentially cause us more problems because ultimately then we don't learn how to deal with that emotion. And we always have to use food as a way of coping with it, um, which is often not what we want to be doing long term for various different reasons. So I think those are two of the kind of quite common things that I used to see that people Mm. experience in their early lives. And then I think there's all the sort of societal impact around body image and around weight and particularly with binge eating because there's this idea of this idealized body image that we need to look a certain way we need to restrict what we're eating we need to cut our calories down not eat very much not listen to our body but instead you know eat a certain amount of food and certain types of food and of course that leads us to restrict and when we restrict we end up overeating we cannot avoid that ultimately we end up overeating because we've restricted for so long our body starts to crave food we become preoccupied with food it's like it's everywhere around us so we will end up then overeating and binge eating because we've restricted so often people who binge eat will tend to not eat very much at all during the day and then eat all of their food say for example at night time because they haven't eaten during the day so I think the sort of shared theme amongst all of this is that We've overridden the ability to listen to our body and to be guided by hunger, fullness and what feels nourishing when we eat it. And that can be any food. You know, this is not about never eating certain foods or only eating other foods, but about kind of really what feels nourishing for us physically and psychologically. How do you advise people to get support? Like, is it a clinical psychologist? Is it a therapist? Is it a hypnotherapist? I feel that Sometimes it can be quite confusing when you're addressing something Mm -hmm. like a binge or emotional eating. What would you advise? It is, isn't it? It's so confusing. There's so many different professionals out there. And I think the really tricky thing with therapy and with counseling is it's not as well regulated as it should be. Mm. So I think the most important thing is whether it's a counselor, a therapist, a psychotherapist, a psychologist, a hypnotherapist, make sure that whoever it is, is appropriately qualified to do the work that they are offering. Because I think sometimes people aren't, and that's quite scary. And if you're not sure, you can ask them for their training, ask them for their credentials. And if they're genuine, they will be able to show you their training and what they've done. And then you'll know that they're trained to do it. In terms of the right sort of approach, again, and I think I've said this throughout, it really is on the individual with what works best for them and the type of therapy and the type of person that that they want. There's lots of different therapies out there. So I think 
as an individual, as a consumer, I guess, of these possibilities, you know, it doesn't hurt to make contact with different therapists that often will offer a, a short free phone call to get a feel of them, to get a sense of the way they work and to see if there's that connection there. So almost like interviewing a, a therapist, if you like, and um, to see who's right for you. And, and again, I'd always advise people to listen to their gut, like your gut, your body is so wise and get a sense of what feels right from that rather than maybe what your head is telling you should or shouldn't do. And this, of course, is or for private work, you know, obviously there is also the option for the NHS and, and you'd most likely need to speak to your GP to get access on the NHS. However, saying that, it's quite rare, very rare actually, to find NHS support for binge eating. So if it's available to you, it doesn't hurt to ask and to find out. Um, but there's often not very much available on the NHS. There are some charities, some groups and the BEAT website would often list kind of what local support network groups and things there might be in your area as well. How can people work with you? Where's the best place for people to go? Um, if something has resonated from this episode, mm -hmm. uh, we've covered a lot of topics. So yes, where's the best place for people to find you? I have a website, which is drnaomimiddleton.co.uk and an Instagram, which is at drnaomimiddleton. Um, so either there to reach out and to make contact and then I'm more than happy like I say I'll offer a free short phone consultation to see if we're a good fit and different ways of working with me as well so I like to offer the one-to-one -one therapy approach but also consultation so standalone appointments because for some people whatever reasons there might be you know one-to-one -one therapy isn't always the right answer for them and sometimes it is about gee I have a question I want just an hour to pick someone's brains and then I want to go away and do this work myself and I think that can be a really wonderful approach that's not utilized enough actually so I do like to offer that kind of option for people as well. Brilliant. We'll put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Naomi, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 